All right, Kindred, we are in the second week of looking at the major themes in this book called Ecclesiastes, uh, these ideas that this, uh, this writer called The Teacher wrote so long ago. Uh, it's this book that's in the genre of wisdom literature, which means a bunch of different things. It means that, uh, honestly, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of literary devices that are being used. And there's a ton of contextual moments that we have to pull apart. So things that, like word choice and phrasing and even some of the assumptions that come along with the words that, the, that were made by the writer who calls himself the teacher, they all necessitate us paying attention really to their context, how they were used then, and then to our context and how we use them now. So tonight, uh, to frame Ecclesiastes for us, if you missed last week, we looked at kind of the big picture of Ecclesiastes and what it says. And tonight, we're going to do that again, but through the focus of really a single word. And so tonight, to frame it, I want to start with a, a little story. Uh, it's a story from the Bible, kind of close partnership together that uh, it, their business tie is definitely added to complications in their relationship, and especially sometimes when they make less than good you know, decisions and it would lead to at least one really major blow up with their boss. But they got through all of that together and they were moving through life and things were going pretty good. After a while, they decided like a lot of couples that it was the right time to add to this family, to this dynamic they were living in. So they decided let's bring a baby into this world. So they give birth to a, to a son. Uh, I think that Eve was pregnant for about 12 months like Lindsay. And, the, and they gave the strong name from this language of their faith, and they gave him the name Cain, uh, Cain, which translates for us uh, and to basically bring in or bring forth. They, they brought forth this life. They brought in this life to their dynamic. And it signaled that they had embraced uh, this life together. They had embraced this child, and they made part of their existence together, part of this collective story, this thing called a family for the first time. And as all parents do, they learned through the, the life of this baby, they learned about life in really great ways, in really scary ways, in really discouraging ways. They raised this first child. They had to teach him to drive a camel at some point. That's horrifying. But before long, all the difficult parts of having a baby were forgotten because this is how the human race sustains itself, right? All the good things were the things that were remembered. All the love that they had for that child led them to say, we want to share that love wider. We want to bring in more members to this family. So their second son was born. And they gave him this precarious name. I don't know if maybe they were the first hipsters too, but they gave him this kind of precarious name that didn't make a lot of sense. They gave him the name Hebel, uh, roughly translated, as we've seen already in Ecclesiastes, as meaningless. They named their child meaningless. And maybe more aptly, it could also mean this, a vapor or a breath, a short time. And they maybe didn't even know why but it felt like the right name for this little baby that they brought into their family. So these boys, Chaim and, and, and Hebel, as we know them in English, and I'm going to start saying it in English now because I'm not good at the other thing, Cain and Abel, right? Some of us know the story. They took on roles in their family. Uh, both boys picked up their family business, so Cain became a farmer. He worked the land for the family. And, and Abel became a shepherd, and he watched over their family flocks. They both worked in the family business. And now sibling rivalry exists in most families, and this first family uh, kind of laid the blueprint for it. It was no different in that way. The boys went to give God an offering off their work in the fields and, and their work uh, with the flocks. They went to God, and they went to thank him for all that he had done, for all that he blessed the family with. And so they went and, and, and presented to him an offering. And what happens here in the story of Cain and Abel is something that, without much drama, because it really is true, it changes really the course of human history. Cain held back. 
Cain gives what is referred to as a subpart offering, while Abel gave God his best. He said, God, here's how you've blessed me. I bless you back. And it wasn't that he gave the right amount, like there was some percentage he was supposed to hit. It wasn't that he gave the right whatever. It was because Abel gave from his heart. He gave sacrificially. He gave out of thanks, right? And so scripture tells us this. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very God. Next time, instead, we're told he's filled with hate for his brother. He's filled with disdain for him. He's jealous for sure, but he's also angry. And he's angry about a few things. He's not just angry that Abel got something good, a blessing from God. He's also angry because he didn't get away with his own misbehavior. He didn't get away with his own, uh, his own deed. He got caught in the middle of it. And for most of us, probably I'd say all of us, both sides of this equation is a familiar feeling, right? All of us have had this moment where we fi- finally like, you know, say that enough with that. I'm jealous of this. I'm angry at this. And we've also been in the shoes in the role where somebody was mad at us for something when we didn't do anything wrong. So the difference for this story here, for Cain and Abel, is that it leads Cain to be filled with this kind of rage, with so much anger, with so much disdain, that he murders his little brother. So he then acts as if he doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know where Abel is. He doesn't know anything. And God tells Cain this. He says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The innocent, the good kid Abel, the vapor, the, the breath is overtaken by the sin of his brother Cain. And this name, Cain, that means to bring in, to bring forth. Instead, he ushers in this human capability of letting our own darkness fall over the lives of other people. Abel's death also sets this precedent. This precedent of God's like just dismay at the actions that people take and the structure he gave us of free will. His, his vow to protect Cain. So God says to, to Cain, I won't let anybody take revenge on you. I will protect you. I won't let retribution fall on you. This is our earliest example of this, this idea that I want to look at tonight. When good things happen to bad people and when bad things happen to good people. Cain was banished from this land that he knew, so he was punished for sure. But he found himself in this new place with his family, with the people that he loved. And he got to live out a life on earth that his brother never got to have. So if you were here last week or maybe you missed it, here we are in the middle of another beginning of a heartwarming night at church, right? (laughs) That's where we land ourselves right now. Stick with us for a moment though, because it's gonna sound worse before it sounds better because that's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. So just as I started last week, I wanna start again with the opening lines of Ecclesiastes where the, the writer, the teacher, he says, meaningless, meaningless, Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And if your podcast cut out, I'm sorry right there, but it, but it gets better. I want to look at this tonight, though, with this Hebrew word that's being used. This word, Abel. This word that really gets us to read this sentence like this. Abel. Abel. It's utterly able. Everything is able. Right? The word, Hebel, Abel appears in the Old Testament 86 times. We get this word 86 times in the Old Testament. 38 of the uses are right here in Ecclesiastes. And then eight more of them are in Genesis 4, the passage that we started out with me paraphrasing tonight. The rest of them are scattered in other really uplifting places like Job 
and Proverbs, if you're familiar with some of those passages. And in its most literal use, this word is the word that we do get, the word vapor or breath, a moment and to signal towards things that don't produce their expected results. Things that we thought were going to do one thing and they do something totally different. So like we looked at last week, if you missed this, I'm just briefly going to share again. There's a really strong tie between the structure of this book, Ecclesiastes, and the structure of Genesis 1 through 3, the creation story. And we looked at this in depth last week, but the teacher's recalling all of God's work in those first three chapters uh, by using and reusing specific words and phrases that talk about this empty pursuit of his own life. The things that he goes after that lead nowhere, and he calls it chasing the wind. Uh, so the fact that Abel was killed needlessly, senselessly, plays right into this narrative of Ecclesiastes and shows even further how the teacher wants us to interact with the central message of his work. He says this, he says, in this meaningless, in this able life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So he says this, in this life that hasn't held up to his promise, right? To use that word the right way, or, or to my expectations or to what I thought would happen. He's really saying this, in all the frustrations of life, I've seen good people get the short end of the stick while terrible people get everything that they want. And this is, of course, one of life's biggest questions and one that we ask a lot. Uh, AJ, one of our youth group leaders, he told me this is one of the questions they get the most with middle school and high school students. Why do people who act like that get good things? I know for me personally, it's one that I ask often in a variety of different ways, and it's really the age-old one like this. Why do bad things happen to good people, right? And I'll say this, biblically, there are a ton of ways to tackle this question, and starting with this, really, the Old and New Testament give us a, a really clear picture of, of what's going on when we ask that question, because it says when it really comes down to it, when you really come to the brass tacks of who people are, there's no such thing as a good person. The good news keeps coming. The, the heartwarming news keeps coming. Ecclesiastes says it like this. The teacher says, indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And then Paul in the New Testament, he wrote most of the New Testament in his letters to this early Christian church. He quotes this passage from Ecclesiastes 7.20 and he also combines it with a psalm and he says it like this. Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear. There's no reverence. There is no respect of God before their eyes. So theologically, this is a really important concept for us to grab a hold of because this concept is this. We need a savior, right? It's as simple as that, but it's also as complex as this. Jesus has to be the one that delivers us from our sin. Not our own work, not our own righteousness, not our ability to be a good person. So we get in this moment, in these ideas from both the teacher and from Paul, this concept. But to even step back a little bit in, this, in these words, I think it also contains a ton of wisdom practically for us. There's certainly people in this world, probably all of us can name a few people in our lives even, right, that run by their own lack of a worldview or maybe some kind of warped worldview that bends them towards being what we would consider pretty nasty people, right? And politicians too much, but that's okay. Um, all, of, all these things happen this way. We're far from perfect, right? But the people that, that, that we see getting what's right and good and noble, oftentimes we see them and we say, why do they get to have that? 
And we hold our lives up, and generally we tend to cast ourselves into the role of good guy in the world, right? And so the people who aren't like us tend to become kind of the bad guys or the people that we disagree with. And, and then we see these people that are, 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 are not even trying sometimes, it seems like. They're not even trying to be a good person. They're not even trying to look out for other people. And we think, why don't we get the appropriate return that we think we deserve? And this is really why the idea, it's like this big idea out there in the world of, of karma is so appealing to people. It'd be so nice if it was real when we are good people, right? But I'm here tonight to tell you, and I already had one person argue with me tonight, karma isn't real. It doesn't hold up. And someone said, well, how can you know that? How can you possibly say that? And I'll tell you this, it's because this is it's a concept as old as time itself. It's Abel in a pool of his own blood in a field, right? While Cain relocates and lives his days out and has an okay existence. It's sick kids, it's earthquakes and tornadoes that bring devastation and kill people. It's war and it's famine. It over and over again is right in our faces that, that people suffer and they don't always deserve it. The teacher brings it back up like this. He says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. This too, I say, is kind of like Abel's life. It promised one thing and it gave us something totally different. He then says that envy drives the behavior of humans. And he's again nodding back to Cain and Abel. And he's saying that it's, it's an empty, it's a hevel, it's a meaningless way to live. It leads to chasing the wind. In fact, he says this. He says, the things that I've been warning you about in this letter, chasing the wind, the, the, the things that I've, that I've said are, are, are weapons that, 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 that people use, uh, that these people that you consider bad are using them to make good things come their way when they manipulate these things. And this is what he's talking about. The teacher's warning us about things like this, things like power that's leveraged against good-hearted people, or, or even just people that have no agency and no power falling at the feet of people with power who have nothing good in mind for them. It's, it's narratives that are created and changed at will to protect that power and the people who are powerful. It's trampling people who stay quiet out of fear or desire to make peace or whatever their motivation may be. The teacher says, I have tried these things. They're chasing the wind, but bad people leverage them to get good things. And guys, that simply put in a really easy word is sin, right? Even when other people call it good business or leadership or something else, it's sin. No matter how dressed up it is, no matter how much we can try to call that sin something else, it wreaks havoc in our lives. It makes us think sometimes that God's punishing us because bad things are falling around us and, and bad things are happening to us. But instead it's this, it's, it's us, it's other people choosing to inflict pain and misery on, other, on someone else. Or in the reverse, having it inflicted on us. So the inverse question to the original one is that as the bad people and leads to life outside of the way that God designed it. It's again that word hebel, something that was intended to be good and it ends up being something completely different. God knew that free will was going to give the framework for this. And then he grieved from the moment that Abel's life was misused and never met his potential. Abel's blood cried out from the ground that sin was bending the way that life is supposed to be. It's turning it upside down. So strangely, uh, one of the places that I've been reading to find solace in this entire conundrum of these two big questions uh, of wicked people getting what righteous people deserve and righteous people suffering as the wicked should is to the famous story in the Bible 
of Job. And Job, if you've never read it and you're not familiar, Job is a man that suffered in every way that you can name. He suffered personally, he suffered financially, he suffered spiritually. The people who were even close to him suffered far worse than he did. He, he got to point into a story where he's been arguing with God, he's been asking God questions, really good questions. And he even got to a point in his story where all of this idea from Ecclesiastes becomes clear to him too. See, his friends had come around, they gave him advice. You guys ever have a friend give you the worst advice at the worst moment? This dude had uh, uh, several of them who were giving him the worst advice at the worst moment. And, they, and, and really, basically, they said this, blame God for everything bad that happened to you. He doesn't care about you. He's not looking out for you. So for 41 chapters, we get either one of his friends or Job himself leveraging uh, accusations at God and God answering them. Really, in chapter 41, with this crescendo of know your place, you know, like my dad used to do to me at the dinner table. And then we get to Job 42, after God has said some really amazing things. But after 42 chapters of honestly horrifying accounts, Negative responses, if you exercise any empathy, responses that make sense. And Job finally comes to this point because God answers him specifically and directly. Job says this, I know that you can do all things. and No purpose of yours could be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful to know. See, at the end of all of this, Job understands that God actually isn't against him, but is trying to work good in the moments and the worst things that happened to him. The concept that lies at the heart of this is, is a concept called retributive theology. And, and if that's like too much for you, this is this. It's really simple. It's the assertion that obedience should result in God giving us blessings, while disobedience should ruin us. But this breaks down. This, for the first three chapters of Genesis, is okay. But chapter four with Cain and Abel, this entire concept breaks down. Anybody who still lives with the idea that, that just doing the right things will make your life better, and if, and, and if you do the wrong things, your life is going to be worse. They didn't get past Genesis 3. <laughs> it's the very beginning of the Bible. It all breaks down with this unfulfilled promise of Abel's life. And to borrow from the language that we used last week, the world is turned upside down. And sin leads to this ability for people to get good things by doing evil. So, question at the end of it is, what do we make of all of that? Uh, I think that we start by exploring what the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes, what he got out of all of this. See, that the very reading of this book, this, this, this teaching called Ecclesiastes is, is really an opportunity for us to be encouraged and not depressed. And I know it sounds weird, right? It's, it's not supposed to feel like you just watched the notebook 10 times in a row at the end of this letter. You're supposed to actually feel like understanding, understand what able, the combination of the ableness of life. And again, it's when the relationship between actions and expected results is turned upside down, helps us see that Ecclesiastes is not the rumblings of a discontented sage. Rather, it's a book written from the wrestling of a faithful follower of God. It's a book that guides us through the vagaries of life in this fallen world, offering the solution for how to navigate such a dark and twisted place. Right, it changes a lot for me. Because here's the truth. It's true that our lives are like a breath long. When you really think about history, it's a blink in history. It's just a moment in time. And that can either be the most depressing thing in the world or it can be a statement filled with hope and certainty when we look at these words. Because I think the real question that haunts the idea of good and bad things happening to the wrong or right kind of people, for me, when I'm asking it, I really think that I'm asking God this. God, how could you let that happen to me or somebody I love? How could you possibly let that happen? It's really easy for me to understand sometimes kind of macro evils. 
Like when I think about the evil that I really think is real in this world, when we talk about demonic, satanic power that influences people to do horrible things, it's things like the Holocaust and mass shootings are at least theologically understandable for me. But sometimes the micro evils that happen right in our own lives and the tight circles to the lives of people that we love are the most difficult to understand or to move through. I heard a rabbi say it like this this week. His name's Harold Kushner. He said, we could bear nearly any pain or disappointment if we thought there was a reason behind it or a purpose to it. I've been thinking about it through this lens. I've done in the last five or six years probably close to 100 funerals. And every single time I, I, I sit down with a family and I talk about the person that they lost and I listen. I just listen as they tell stories. And people tell stories a lot of times they're inspirational, right? Or they're the lessons that they learn from this person that they love. A ton of times it's through tears telling about how crazy the person was and all their antics and all the really great funny stories that they're taking from the person's life. I almost never get something like this. I almost never get a story about somebody stealing a blessing or, or living a terrible life and, and getting by, right? I almost never get the uh, kind of cliche thing of, oh, he skipped all my baseball games because he worked too much. We almost never hear stories like that a couple of times, and it's sad. But what we instead get almost every single time is we get stories about people who love somebody so much that it inspires them to remember all of the good, all the things that mattered most. It's what pulls them through the toughest times that they have. See, Ecclesiastes is teaching us something really important. It's teaching us that eternity's mystery is tied up in a bunch of things. One of them is that bad people get away with so much and that it isn't necessarily like, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to be with us in eternity, right? But really, the mystery is here. It really resides in the fact that our faith in Jesus has never been because we believe that he gives us a pain-free life on earth, right? We know that doesn't happen. Anybody who's lived a few days knows that doesn't happen. It's because we get a perfect eternity with him. We get a place where we are reunited with our loved ones that also know him, it's a place where pain stops. It's a place where people can't steal or cheat or con anymore. It's a place where bad intention bosses or, or people in your life, they can't change narratives and protect themselves and their empire and make you look bad. It's because we want to bring your take away into the enjoyment of life. Because there's nothing better for a person under the sun to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. So he says that the first solution is really simple. It says, enjoy the good things that we have right now. It's more or less his assertion to say this. God gives us gifts that are, that are here to make all the difficult parts of life a little easier to deal with. And, and we may as well enjoy them, live into them with all that we have. We should enjoy the food that we eat, the drinks that we have. We should pave a way towards joy through the people in our lives, the friends, the family, the important people that really understand us and love us. And then next he tells us this. He says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does, the, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. All right, so the teacher here is reiterating that life isn't fair, but also that, that it's leaning it. He's leaning us towards this understanding that God is still good and God is just. So here we're reminded that you can be strong and you might still lose right? Or that you can be brilliant, but you might be unable to find food or money or favor because life is both a breath, a moment, and also in the day-to-day -day living, it's sometimes really long and tiring and difficult. And these difficulties arise and we have to be ready to navigate them. 
And all of it points again to this conclusion, this place that he ends, this, this, this book, this teaching, where he says this. That's the whole story. Here's my final conclusion. Fear God, uh, respect God, revere God, and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And the teacher's telling us this. Justice will be present at the end. God knows what's going on in the hearts of both the good person that has bad things happen to them and in the bad intentioned person who finds earthly good. God knows. His invitation is this, that through Jesus, through the power that he holds, his invitation is to keep in mind that eternity holds perfection for the Christ follower, but this life doesn't. In eternity, pain and tears and sadness are wiped away. Reunions that we long for take place and that Jesus will hold us and justify us and restore us like only he can, no matter what our life here on earth looked like. So trusting Jesus to give life real meaning, to give real depth and quality to it, it teaches us also the inverse, which is this. Without him, it can feel meaningless. It can feel absurd. It can feel like a vapor or a breath that is here and gone with no sense or purpose. But the teacher instead invites us to enjoy life as we have it, and to continue to trust in God that through Jesus, he's going to give us true meaning to this life that we lead. So Kendra, I'm going to pray if you would stand with me and pray together. God, I come to you tonight thankful for Jesus, thankful for the truth, which is that in this world, in this place that we are, terrible things happen. God, and also great things happen, and sometimes neither one makes any sense. But God, tonight, we see even through the words of this teacher who wrote and taught long before Jesus walked the earth, we see that he was pointing all this time to the promise that's found in Jesus, that justice does come, that the things that we struggle towards and the things, the things you promise reunion with you, which is Jesus himself, which is an answer and an end to all of our pain and all our suffering and all of our tears. So God, I pray tonight that no matter where we come in here, on the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, God, whether we are in the spot of our life where we have run out of answers or in a spot of our life where things are just really going well, I pray tonight that we could lean into this idea, God, this idea that there's so much meaning in a life that's lived with Jesus, that the pain that is on this earth, the temporary things that we go through, God, that as we move through them, we understand it's because you are showing us again and again that eternity holds for us the promise of perfection, the promise that you will hold us and guide us and love us through all of it. I thank you for who you are. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.